9, 30 through 50. I'm Lauren Beckman, and I serve here as one of the elders. Um, Mark 9, 30 through 50. They went from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if any one of you would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John, <clears throat> and John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great milestone or millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its salt, or if it lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lauren. So glad you're here today again. My opportunity to welcome you and, and to open God's Word with you as we gather and, and think about the words of Jesus today, to center the words of Jesus as we finish up Mark chapter 9. Maybe after hearing that passage read, you're thinking, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. There are, these are some of the words repeated in today's passage. Kill. Servant, argue, evil, sin, thrown in the sea, hung, unquenchable fire, cut it off, tear it out, hell, worm, salt. Sounds like an uplifting passage today, doesn't it? <laughs> the unquenchable fire of hell. And yet I was contemplating this week, as next, as next time I know we go to Mark 10, Jesus' difficult words on marriage and divorce, I was thinking, what would I rather teach on? 
<laughs> marriage and divorce or hell? And I think I would choose hell. <laughs> I, I mean, Jesus, it does speak very clearly and forthrightly on this topic uh, throughout the Gospels, very much so. Um, you know, this week as I was driving along, I saw a bumper sticker that I think encapsulated the antithesis of what Jesus wants us to teach us today. It said this. It said, my way that way, or the highway that way. Now, of course, I don't, I don't know as I saw it the driver's intent, and I don't think it's anybody that goes here. I hope not. Or I'll have, be having a conversation, I'm sure, after church today. Uh, but when I saw that, I, 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 what I saw at least, whether it was the driver's intent or not, when I read that, it was like, hey, everybody, I'm heading that direction, my way. The highway of life might be going that way, but I am doing my own thing. I got my own path. I got my own way. I'm going that way. I'll see you later. It's more than likely the early church father, his name was Augustine, in the 400s that said this phrase, which kind of is like that bumper sticker. It was a Latin phrase. I don't know Latin, incurvatus, in say, but it really here's what it means. It means to be turned inward on oneself. To be turned inward on oneself. He used that phrase to describe humanity. This early church father, Augustine. A life that's lived focused on inwardly, on oneself, rather than outwardly for God and for others. It's a state of every human being, in Augustine's simple phrase, a state of every human being born in this, into this world. Hearts curved inward on oneself. It looks kind of like this. Yeah, there it is. That's, that makes it simple. That's Augustine's phrase right there for us. The human heart is born... Addicted to, to self. My way or the highway. My way or the highway. Or his phrase, turned inward on oneself. Or this little picture that kind of gives us a, a graphic image, me. We know that. I know that. As I have a tendency at times, it can be petty or selfish or entitled or, or grumpy. And apart from the work of God that we're going to see today, we stay that way. Hearts turned inward. My way or the highway, a big me stamped on our heart. And it's something, if we're honest, we struggle with even after we become a follower of Jesus Christ. We have a, a, a cultural GPS. We have an internal GPS that tells us life is about me and my needs and my wants. Your culture will tell you that the great life is a life lived for me, myself, and I. I think the Beatles song went, I, me, my, that was it. And yet this morning, as we look at Jesus' words, we are going to see an absolutely radical, countercultural message of serving others from Jesus today that shows that greatness lies on a different road. Greatness lies on a different road. There's a road that leads to greatness, but we're going to find that it challenges our internal GPS. It challenges our cultural GPS, and it's going to point us to the road that Jesus walks. This morning, we're going to look at four trails, four trails on a larger road of true greatness from this passage. Four trails that are going to show us how Jesus defines greatness. So grab your outline. Hopefully, you got it open in front of you. 
uh, with your fill-ins there to kind of help you follow along. Hopefully you got your Bibles open to Mark chapter 9. As we're going to look at these four trails, let's look at the first one. Here it is. The great servant, as we're talking about greatness this morning, the great servant leads by laying down his life. What is the great life? What does it mean to be great? Is the great life just fulfilling self? I think if we didn't start here on this first trail today, this first trail that says the great servant leads by laying down his life, I don't know how I'd preach this message, actually. I don't know how I'd preach a message to you where Jesus defines the road to greatness as obedience that leads to death. Or this call to be the servant of all, he said. Or being okay as John had to be watching others succeed even if they weren't part of your in-group. Or finally, as we're going to close today with our fourth trail, that he calls us to suffer by battling sin. I don't know how I talk about any of those things if we didn't start with this trail. And that's where Jesus starts. Jesus, again, on another stealth journey, says for the second time of three in the Gospel of Mark, he tells his disciples that he, he says, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men and be killed and three days later resurrect. Jesus, in this discipleship section of Mark, chapters 8 through 10, is trying to prepare them for what is coming. What's going to happen? What's on the road ahead, guys? He's trying to get them ready. But they're still not understanding. And the, the text says they were even afraid. I, I don't understand, Jesus. The Son of Man, this divine, glorious picture from the book of Daniel, this divine being, how is it that that Son of Man is going to die? It doesn't compute, Jesus. It doesn't make sense. And this is how we begin to see this first trail here. This is how you and I can begin to see how it's possible for God then to ask those who follow him to serve with our own lives. We have to start here. Or, or as Paul said in another place in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The reason God can ask us and ask his disciples here to give so much of ourselves and, 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 and ask us to serve in this kind of manner, or Paul says in Romans, is because he himself was willing to give up his own life for us. That's the only reason. That's the only reason he can ask us and, and lay before us this big picture of discipleship is that he was willing to secure us in our salvation by his death, by his resurrection alone, by free grace and his sacrifice. Because it's free, because you're secure, he then can therefore say, now I'm going to ask you, give up your life for me. And they were going to have to hear this. They had to hear this. And they were going to have to understand this even which they did after the resurrection, if this small band of disciples was going to survive. And if the church wasn't going to be snuffed out and disappear in the first year, they were going to have to get this. They were going to have to because it was going to take, as we know, they did pay the ultimate price, didn't they, those early disciples? 
They paid with their lives for the sake that this message would survive and pass on. And we're the fruit of that today. We wouldn't be here if those first 12 men didn't get this, this first trail. Truth was what began as well to turn their inward curved hearts too. Because the disciples had the same problem we do. It began to turn those hearts outward rather than curved inward on themselves. Jesus would be delivered over, the Son of Man. Think about it, the irony. The creator of the universe, the Son of Man, will be put into the hands of man. He'd put himself in, in their reach when he took on a body. The irony there. The Son of Man who made these people is going to put himself in a body now, something physical that can be grasped and hit and destroyed and killed. He does that. But you know what's even more astounding? Uh, the, The verses we read said, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of man. Who delivered Jesus up? Who delivered him over? Did it just get out of control and things just got kind of crazy and it wasn't quite how he'd planned it, but hey, it's getting out of, let's just go with it. Let's just run with it. It's getting crazy and they're talking my death. All right, let's just go that way. No, 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 that's not it at all. Who delivered Jesus over? Well, Judas, yes, you maybe know that. The story, Judas, yes, uh, uh, as a secondary cause or maybe those who drove the nails in his hands, they sure would be part of that delivering of Jesus over. But who was the first cause? Do you know? God the Father. God the Father delivered Jesus up. Here's just a quick verse from Acts 2. This Jesus, here's even the word, delivered up, given up for you, according to the definite plan. Not a secondary plan, not a plan like, hey, we just don't have this figured out. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God Peter says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What is Peter saying? God purposely killed his son so that he might give you and I life and not have to kill us. That's heavy. That is heavy. That by faith alone we are saved. That's the gospel. True greatness came through Christ's obedient death. That's the first trail. And until we grasp that more, and the more you do grasp that, we walk on the trail, as the disciples did, we'll see in a minute, arguing over our own greatness. Because that's what they did. Looking out for number one. Hearts that are stamped with a big me, that are curved inward, trying to be the best and greatest. Don't get me wrong. Jesus calls us to do our best as we're going to see later on in the passage. He calls us to do our best, but just not to think we are the best and treat others as if we are the greatest. So this first trail, we have to see that the great servant served by giving his life, by laying down his life, if we're to get this second one. Or be able to even move towards this second one. Here it is. The great servant follows by putting others first. So if Jesus says again, I am going to be delivered and die and raise for you. A great servant follows by putting others first. I want us to think, as we even saw in the story, about the irony of this picture. 
As we, are along the way in the Gospel of Mark, have been trying to see ourselves as companions walking shoulder to shoulder with the disciples, putting ourselves inside these stories, you're there now walking on the road to Capernaum. And Jesus says, I'm going to die, guys, and I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to be basically murdered. I will be killed. And they're walking along to Capernaum, arguing amongst themselves, who's the best? Who's the greatest? No, 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 no way. We're the best. We're the most respected. We were the three he took up to the mountain. Remember a couple weeks ago? We were the three he took up that saw that great blinding light. Yeah, but I'm the one that cast out the demon that time. You didn't do it. I did it. But no, he spends more, he spends the most time talking with me. I've got to be the greatest. When Jesus had just told them, I will die for you. And Jesus, as you see in the story here, they're walking along as if he doesn't know, asks them, guys, what, what were you talking about on the road? Which means that Jesus just told them about his death and he walked alone. And they were all off on the side arguing together. After you just shared this, you think they would comfort. Oh, Jesus, tell us more. Now they're arguing. They're focused on hearts stamped with a me, right? And he asks them, and they, um, nothing, Jesus. <laughs> We're not talking about anything. The weather, right? What we had for dinner last night. Where we want to eat when we get back to Capernaum. No, nothing. Jewish culture. It gives us a little help here. It was a culture of traditions and procedure and ranking in their culture everywhere. So much so one scholar said, at all points of Jewish life, in worship, administration of justice, at meals even, dinner time, in all dealings, there constantly arose the question of who was greater. It was just part of everyday life for them. It's just part of life. A culture of, you might say, even pride. Priding oneself in standing and position and reputation. Rather than serving others out of an overflow of gospel, gratitude was not even on their radar. Wasn't on their radar what Jesus says to them next. Totally off the reservation for them. But is it on ours, this idea? Is it on our radar, or yours, that Jesus calls disciples to serve in this passage out of gratitude, an overflow of gratitude for the gospel. Is it on ours? Here's the question. Where do you struggle with pride yourself? What isolates you from service? And if you just thought, well, I don't struggle with pride, you do. (laughs) If you just thought that. I found some great questions this week online for testing our pride. There's a bunch. I'm just going to rapid fire go through them. Think of your own heart. You may not, I guess, yeah, you can probably see them. Here's a few of them. Just, just here's some questions that can test ourselves for pride. Do you find yourself looking down on others for their lack of talent, success, or ambitions? Do you tend to talk more about yourself in a conversation rather than give the opportunity to hear about others? Do you find it difficult to confess when you've done something wrong? Do you consider yourself immune to certain sins or behaviors saying things like, I would never do that. I have said that about my own kids. <laughs> I would have never done that as a kid. Totally pride. Do you find yourself getting decisive and have a hard time accepting criticism? When it comes to daily activities and routines, do you expect others to serve you rather than serving others? Do you like to argue, debate, prove yourself right? Do you have trouble accepting help from others? Is it difficult for you to encourage and compliment others? And that was just 10 out of the 20 just by doing a quick 
search online questions, to look at our own hearts. We struggle with pride too, because I know I, ha- I have multiple up there. We do. And Jesus says to his disciples, okay, guys, take a seat. <laughs> when anybody ever says to you, are you sitting down? You know the news that's coming is heavy or big or shocking. What does he say to him? He says, let's sit down, guys. Let's take a seat. Here's what he said. Look at verses 35 to 37 with me of chapter 9. He said, and he sat down, he called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You know, Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, there's no such thing as greatness, as we're talking about what's the great life, what's the great road, what's the great purpose. He doesn't say there's no such thing as greatness. He just absolutely redefines it for them and for us too. He absolutely, he, he, he turns the world upside down where our culture might say to be great in power, uh, in, in might, in rights, in demands. And Jesus says be great in things that matter to God. That's how you become great. Be great in things that matter to God. He says, if you want to be great in this world, you must be a servant, one who serves. It's totally countercultural to them. It's totally countercultural to us. And Jesus is not saying, don't be in positions of authority. He's not saying that. He's not saying, don't be as a servant, don't be in positions of leadership. He's not saying that or, or positions of influence. He's not saying that. He's just saying, when you are and if you are, do you have a posture of serving or being served? In whatever state of life you find yourself in or position, do you have a posture of wanting to be served or to serve others? As Jesus himself laid down his life, he's calling them to be radical servants. And he, he understands this is hard, and so he puts an exclamation point on it. You know how he does it? He picks up a child. He grabs a little child, and it was probably even Peter's child. As he lived in Capernaum, and as they went to a house, it was probably Peter's house. Could have been Peter's child that he took, and, and he takes the child in his arms, and he tells them, receive people like this. Receive one like this child that I'm holding. In this ancient culture, too, there was no one more needy than a child. There was no one placed in lower esteem, really, than a child. They were lost in childbirth a lot. They really, it, was, it was really difficult on a family to have another child with not much available, as it can be today. Ch- children were needy. They had zero respect, so much different than today. So much different. They were the least in their culture. The last and the least was a child. It's hard for us to envision. But it's so serious when he picks up a child and says, love one like this. Receive one like this weak child. He's essentially saying to them, disciples, love the unlovable. Love the unlovable. Care for the least. Don't show favoritism or, or precedence to, or, uh, you know, to someone. Love those who have no power in the world. Love them with open arms like he's taking in this child. And he says to them, when you do, 
When you love the least who is a follower of Jesus Christ, it's like you're receiving not just Jesus, but the Father too. Why? Because the Father lives in that disciple, even the weakest one, even the one of least esteem, with the least influence. Do you see it? It's it's backwards. It's absolutely backwards. Up is down. You give to get. The last is first. The true road to greatness puts others first. As Jesus put us first by dying for us. But the disciples had trouble as they did with his death. They had troubles with this too. As instantly as we get to our third trail, we see John's pride break through. John's pride breaks through right on these words of calling to servanthood. So here's our third trail. Great deeds promote Jesus, not ourselves. Jesus packed a lot of heavy stuff into this little message in the house. He did. A lot. And the disciples struggled with it, which I'm guessing means we do too, as I know I this week thought through these things. Great deeds promote Jesus, not ourselves, is our third trail that we're pulling out from this passage. First one is Jesus lays down his life. Our second one is then that the servant follows by putting others first. But the third one is as we do, indeed, they promote Jesus, not ourselves, is who we're called to promote. John responds to Jesus' teaching on servanthood in verses 38 to 41 with a prideful attempt to set up a new hierarchy. A new hierarchy, as we said, that culture was that's just the way it ran. Hierarchies of pride and influence and prestige. He says, Jesus, you know, we saw, we saw one of, one of your followers even now, someone claiming Jesus says, we saw him casting out demons in your name, but he is not one of us, so we tried to stop him. He was not following, did you even hear John's words? He was not following us. Us. Not you, Jesus. Because he was. He was using the name of Jesus. He's not following us, Jesus. So we said stop. And Jesus basically says to him, why would you stop him? Why would you stop him? If he's ministering my name, he basically said to John, you're the one who needs to stop, John. Not him. You're the one who needs to stop. Stop what you're doing, John. Stop. He's promoting my name, John. He's doing the good works in the name of Jesus. And you're more concerned that he's devoted to you, us. He's using my name. It's kind of like what Paul said in Philippians. Remember, we went through Philippians. I think it was the first book we did after I got here. Philippians 1, 15 to 18 says this. You see it coming up. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, using that name, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then, he, Paul says, only that in other, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. In that I rejoice. Of course, Paul didn't love that people were using the gospel for selfish gain, but he'd never say stop sharing the gospel because Christ's name was proclaimed. That was what was most important. And I think we all need this lesson. We do. This kind of, the, t- the temptation for hierarchy. Even as we think about church life, even. I know, myself, we can get caught up in us versus them. 
or us and the other church down the road and how we do things and how they do things and it's not the way we do things. And, you know, if they only listen to me, they'd figure out how to pull that thing off. We've done it before. Or, or looking down on other denominations or churches in the community. That's the kind of thing that John was practicing there that we can get caught up in too. This otherness. And Jesus says, if the true name of Jesus Christ and the true gospel now, that's important, the true gospel and the true name is preached, that is good. And if that's happening, we're basically all just different branches of the same business, aren't we? That's what we are. We are. To promote Jesus' name. It's not as if you and I have like a, a, a trademark on Jesus at, at Bethany Church or any other church has like Jesus trademarked. It's not that, but that's kind of what John was practicing. He's not one of us. He's not one of us. He just says, serve in my name. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. When we serve just for the sake of the name of Christ, it frees us actually. When our greatest goal is, hey, did the name of Jesus go out? Great. Versus, well, did they use my idea? Right? Did the name of Jesus go out? That's what, that's what Jesus is saying to John. Why did you try to stop him? He's using the name of Jesus. It frees us from ourself. It turns us, we're talking about that, the curved heart. It turns us outward from ourself, slowly off of our needs, onto meeting the needs of others in the name of Christ, even if it's as simple as a cup of water. Isn't that encouraging? That's encouraging because a lot of the deeds that we do are simple. They go unnoticed. Nobody's ever going to publish it in the candy paper. It just doesn't happen. Most of life isn't lived that way. It's the simple everyday choices we make. Or even a glass of water Jesus honors is given in his name. In his name. That's what discipleship's about. That is what true greatness is, Jesus is saying. It's putting his name forward as we teach, as we share, as we love, as we serve. That's discipleship. And without it, the church is lost. We will be lost. That's the road to true greatness, another road because it's Jesus' road. A suffering road because we don't own his name. We can't trademark his name, but we do represent him. You don't trademark Jesus. We don't trademark Jesus, but you do now. If you are a disciple, represent him, which I think is why Jesus went to this fourth trail so quickly and spent the most time in this little sermon to his guys on this one. And here's our fourth trail. Greatness also, a greatly devoted servant, great devotion to Christ means a great devotion to killing sin. That's strong language. Great devotion to Christ means a great devotion to killing sin. Because while we might not have the corner market on Jesus, and we shouldn't, we want it to be everywhere, his name, we do represent him. You do, if you bear the name of Christ and speak his name, you go out as a representative. Well, here too, but as you go out as well. You know, it's not terribly often in the church today, that we talk about hell. And if you're visiting the first time, I say, welcome to Bethany Church today. <laughs> it's not terribly often we do that. Or how often does somebody talk about judgment? 
hell and judgment. I mean, this forthrightly as Jesus does now. This is where we close today with this last topic. And yet that's where now where Jesus camps with his disciples. He camps on hell and judgment. And if Jesus talks about it, and this is the inspired and errant word of God, which it is, we probably should talk about it too. And it probably has value today for us as well. Because a devoted disciple of Jesus, as Jesus is going to say, takes sin seriously. Or we're using the word kill sin even. It was a great word that the Puritans used to use. The mortification of sin. How much more dramatic can you get than that? The mortification of sin. It's like, it sounds, uh, I don't know, uh, big. <laughs> it is. That's what they meant, to kill sin. Do you know that Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the entire Bible? More than anyone else. And that Jesus Christ now, the loving Savior of the world, thought that his messages should be peppered with judgment. He actually believed it was real. And he actually believed that it was eternal and conscious. And that hell actually, Jesus believed, is a real and literal place. We don't talk about this. We just don't. Most churches struggle to talk about it. But if it's real, it's unloving to not speak of it. Wouldn't you agree? If it's actually real. How do we know Jesus actually believes this? I mean, look at how graphic his imagery is in this passage. How he chose to say it basically is saying, your life hangs in the balance if you don't take sin seriously. That's what we're going to see him say here. Essentially summarizing, your life hangs in the balance if you don't take sin seriously. He says it so graphically, so let's look at what he says about it. Here's our first one. We're going to unpack it in three little subpoints here. The first one is shared sin, I'm calling it. Shared sin that Jesus warns us about sharing our own sin. Look at verse 42 there after you fill that one in. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Well, verse 41 was this connector to, um, speaks of doing good to his followers, cup of water. Verse 42 now is this transition to what happens when a believer causes another believer to sin? And that's when he says these little ones. He's really referring to all disciples. What happens when you pull someone in to sin? I'm calling it shared sin, to share our sin with others. Josephus, he was this Jewish historian. And he wrote uh, around the time, closely after Christ's life, around that time, a Jewish historian. He records uh, some Jewish history of this man named Judas. Not our Judas from the Bible, but a different Judas the Galilean he was called. He was a man that led this early insurrection, a rebellion against Rome who had been oppressing God's people, the Israelites. And he led this insurrection, this great uh, rebellion against the Romans, and they were defeated. Seriously. And Josephus records that his band of men, and himself included, had 
great millstones taken. You know what those are? Those giant stones that grind mill. And they fasten them to their necks. And by punishment and probably by deterrent for others that knew what happened, they actually put these millstones around Judas the Galilean's necks and they dropped them in a lake. And that's how they died. They were alive when it happened. They dropped them in the lake, and I think it's one of the most darkest images that Christ ever has in the Bible. The picture is those that have been drowned, left in a lake, stone on the bottom, tethered floating there in darkness. That's pretty heavy. What a haunting image Jesus makes for us. And I guarantee the disciples could imagine rowing over their boats And they were left there, looking into a lake, and through the clear water of the day, the still water, you have a stone and you have a tethered body. There's an image they could relate to very well. Jesus says that would be a better fate. To sink to the ocean floor and to cause one of his followers to sin. I mean, you, take, you can't get much more serious than that. Let's break the tension a little bit. You can't get much more serious than that, can you? You cannot. But here's the question for us. What in your life, in what way are you causing, tempting, causing, bringing someone else along with you, causing them to desire to sin? What is it? And are you taking that seriously? Because if not, Jesus is saying, you're in danger. You're in serious danger. Well, in our context here, the sin, obviously, that he's spoken to of John is the sin of pride and, and causing others in our own prideful attitudes, maybe a sense of superiority, turning someone off to Christianity because of that. Maybe it's in this context. And people are watching us. People are watching you as soon as they know you're a Christian. Eyes are watching. I mean, how much has the word evangelical showed up in the news in the last couple of years? A lot. People are watching Christians, so don't share in sin. Keep that image in your mind. It's better to fight that sin, to not share it. It'd be better, he says, if you were dropped into that lake. Don't share sin. But here's the next one. Slay sin, he calls us to do. To kill sin. To slay sin. It's another word for killing. To slay it. He takes it, makes it real personal now, not just sharing it with others, but what about you, disciples, Jesus says? How about you personally? I mean, Jesus took sin so seriously, we know, it was our first trail. He took it so seriously, he died for it. But here he speaks so dramatically and drastic as to suggest cutting off a body part to keep yourself from sinning. Now, some have sadly taken this and Jesus' words here, literally here, when we know the Bible forbids self-mutilation and we know actually where does sin proceed from anyways? Your heart. And some have actually taken this seriously as if you could cut off your hands, gouge out your eyes, cut off your feet, or even as Origen, the early church father, may have castrated himself, And you could still be full of sin from the heart. 
So we know it's not necessarily, Jesus is saying, literally do this. But even if he's speaking in what we'd call, it's uh, the word hyperbole, like an exaggeration to have an impact. Even if he's speaking in that, it doesn't lessen the intensity of what Jesus is saying. That sin is serious. And it's not just because God is like, ah, I don't want him to have any fun. The cosmic killjoy is what we call it. Not that. But he takes it so seriously because he knows and God knows there is a design. And when you go off of that road, off of God's design, it is like taking a powder keg of TNT in your life and lighting it. I know. Some of us are heading down those roads, directly down sinful paths. And it's not just because somebody wants to control you, a pastor. It's not because Jesus just wants to control you. He knows that if you go that way, if you follow that path, if you go off of God's design, you're lighting the keg and you're standing next to it, not even running away from it. You're blowing up your life. He's saying that's how seriously Jesus is taking sin. And he's saying, kill the sin that remains in you. I mean, that's why as a church, that's why as a pastor, that's why as a church, it's not that I'm just a nosy guy (laughs) or that I really have this desire to get involved in everyone's business in, in this church or that our elders do or that other leaders do. It's not that. It's just that if we're to love one another, we have to take sin seriously in the church. So when we do talk to each other, when we do confront one another, when a pastor does make a phone call, when an elder does reach out, it is not because we want to be nosy. It's because when we don't take sin seriously, our lives blow up. And we all know it because we've all made those choices. Everybody in this room. That's how seriously Jesus is taking sin here. Jesus is saying, kill the sin that remains in you. And he's saying, if your life is characterized now, because we all still struggle with sin and sin, but if your life is characterized as someone who does not take sin seriously, Jesus is saying, you are in danger of hell. I can't, I can't phrase it any other way today. I can't make it sound any, euphemize it or make it any sound any more just softer. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're someone whose life is not characterized by taking sin seriously, your life does hang in the balance. And it may. And you should question and probe your heart. I can't get around that today. Not that your goodness saves you. We know that. We know that. Jesus started it out in the first trail. Only Jesus saves. But when you know that only Jesus saves, guess what happens? A desire for that goodness wells up inside you. A desire for that goodness. That he loves you so much that a desire to battle that sin does come forth. Always? No. Perfectly? No. But look at your life. Are you characterized by not taking sin seriously? Or is there some desire to do battle against it? He's not calling us to self-mutilation. He's not. We can take a breath. He's not. But he is asking us to examine. He is asking us to examine. Do you hate your sin so much? Here's how we put it in our terms. Do you hate your sin so much you're willing to remove something that seems as vital to your life as a hand, foot, or eyeballs? That's how we can put it in our own terms. Are you willing to do that? Which he said, it's intentional. It's meant to encompass all of life. What do we do with our hands? What do you look at with your eyes? Where do your feet take you? That's what he wants us to ask ourselves. 
Take your sin to Jesus and his cross, or as his logic says, you will end up in a place described by Jesus now as fire, as a smoking rubbish heap where worms feed on your body. Again, I can't, I can't, I, I, do, I dare not soften Jesus' words today. I can't. Those are his words. That's how he describes this place, a real place he thinks of. It's Jesus' words. We can't ignore him. So what are you willing to get rid of to kill sin in your life because of your devotion to Christ? I mean, maybe you're hearing this today. I know, I know this. We're saying a lot of shocking stuff and you're realizing, I don't take my following of Jesus as seriously. Come on. I mean, this is like a bit, this is a bit much. Jesus would say that maybe you aren't a follower. Maybe you aren't a follower yet. But that doesn't mean you can't take your sin to him today and become one of those redeemed and become one of those that is freed from your sin. I mean, how else do you interpret these words? That sin is serious and hell is real. That's what Jesus is saying. To summarize it as simply as we can, sin is serious, hell is real. How do we, how do I, how do we say anything else? Here's the final one. He talks about the cost of sin. So not only sharing it, but the call to slay it, but then the cost of it as well. We close with 49 and 50, kind of some, a little bit strange verses. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. He basically means we will suffer in life. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with everyone. And a disciple, basically, Jesus is saying, who doesn't slay her sin, isn't very salty. Isn't very salty, Jesus says, and, and doesn't live in peace. You're in conflict. Salt, what does it do? It preserves, doesn't it? You, in the ancient world, you'd preserve something with it. It would hold on to the best part of something, like a culture. We're to preserve a culture as Christians. Uh, salt preserves. It also adds flavor to something. And so he says, to not kill your sin is to lose your own saltiness. I told you, it's a, it is. It's an absolutely different road, isn't it, to greatness. It's an absolutely different road today than what the world says. But I tell you, if you find it, you'll be free. You'll be free. Because all that sin, all that weight, all that brokenness, all that past, it's like the chain that was to your neck, to the stone is lopped off. And you, you rise, you float up, but alive, not dead. It's freeing. I went a little too far with that one. <laughs> a servant, a humble servant. That's what he's saying. Be a servant, battle your sins, serve others. When I was in youth ministry, served in youth ministry for, uh, uh, what, 15 years. Youth, children's, all kinds of different stuff. There was a, a, a young man he was, early, he was young when we started. Um, his name was Matt. And he was one of those youth volunteers that, that's just what he did. He was a youth worker. He was going to volunteer. He was going to serve in the youth ministry. Uh, and, and he served, he was there. Anytime the door was open, we did youth ministry, he was there. Loving those kids, sitting with those kids, befriending those kids. When Matt was 11, when he was a child himself, um, he had a stroke at 11. This man, who's now a man, Matt. And Matt, uh, from 11 on, had a, um, a broken body. He just did. 
He always had an arm that didn't work, but he was so gracious, he'd open it to shake your hand. He'd make it work. Uh, part of his face drooped a little when he talked. He always walked with a limp. You just you knew Matt from behind, from across a crowd, anywhere. You just, you just knew him. Matt served in youth ministry for years. Sometimes the kids would poke fun at him. You know, he, he, didn't, he, he, he wasn't always the wisest guy, even though he was the most faithful guy. And sometimes the kids would make fun of him and uh, poke fun at him. But he'd always come back the next week. He was always there. Kept loving those kids, even as, as he did it imperfectly at times. Kept serving. He, he was just always around. Always around. I mean, he's still there doing it. And I've been gone from seven or eight years from that church. And I was there 15, and he was there most of that, I think. He's still there. I mean, the kids keep going. They keep graduating. They keep moving on. He just stays, and then he loves on the next group as his broken self. Is Matt great in the eyes of the world? No. Nobody knows Matt outside of that little church. Well, on the hundreds of youth kids that have passed through there. Is he getting rewards? Is he getting accolades? Is he have spotlights shown on him for many to see? No. I'll tell you, Matt is great in the eyes of God. He's a star in the eyes of God. Because he's following that great path. He's following that path and he's laying down even his own broken body and his, his mat is silly sometimes and makes mistakes. He's, but he's, he's, he's laying down his life serving year after year. Just doing it. In the broken, even sometimes fumbling way he does. Matt is great in the kingdom of God. So that's those four trails today. That's how to be great in the kingdom of God. Jesus lays them out for him. Sometimes obedience leads to death. We serve by putting others first. When we do, it's for the sake of Christ's name, not our own. And because we represent him, we continue to try to represent him well by killing our sin. Let's pray. Lord, I am, I'm indebted to a man like Matt who came alongside me in ministry for years and served, Lord. And I'm reminded by Matt that we don't have to serve perfectly or have it all figured out or always say the right thing to be great in your eyes. We just have to be there and present and willing and able as Matt was. He knew suffering. He knows suffering. His body broke in many ways at age 11. I'm thankful for Matt, so I pray for Matt today. Let him continue to be a servant at Christ Community Church. And may each and every one of us in some way today continue to be a bit more like Matt. I thank you, Lord, that we do have many here that do serve. May they know that. May they know how appreciated they are. I think of even our event Friday night, those who gave of themselves to make that happen. But we all need to grow in it too. We know that. So, Lord, continue to move us forward for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your name. And we can only do it by the power of the gospel. Trail one, you died for us. You save us by free grace. So you do have the right to ask us to serve even to death because you went that way. But your power is at work within us, so lead us forward in a mighty way at Bethany Church, serving here in these walls and abroad in Canby and, and to the ends of the earth we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. 
as we reflect 